Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, where we talk journalists and journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, last week saw some pretty distressing news for journalism with the shuttering of BuzzFeed and 10 Daily. In both cases, it brought to an end not just two diverse and original voices in the domestic media space, but also what was meant to be the way forward with digital news made for digital natives. BuzzFeed was smart, direct and free from the print legacy's way of thinking. Now, News Corp has announced hundreds of job losses to facilitate the company's restructure of its journalism output to go, believe it or not, digitally deeper. In this edition, we are going to try to look forward, be constructive, but what lies ahead for digital news media. So I'm joined by Josh Butler, who until last week, when it was closed, was working at 10 Daily. He has an extensive career in the media for such a young age, including being editor at Huffington Post. He's been a news reporter at the Illawarra Mercury, and he's also written for Junkie. Josh Butler, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi. Returning to Fourth Estate, we have Saffron Howden. She is a journalist and co-founder of Crinkling News. She started her career as a cadet journalist at AAP and has worked at the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Morning Herald. She's also worked in regional media at the Northern Star on the New South Wales North Coast and over the last couple of years has gotten to know the regional news industry from a very different vantage point while touring the country offering training through the Google News Initiative. And welcome to you, Saffron. Well, the media has had a shocker of a year, and if you've been listening to Fourth Estate over the last few years, you'll know that recent years have not been too flash either. And as we recorded, News Corp announced hundreds of new job losses. So why can't the media get a break from endless disruption and job losses? And dare I ask at this time, is there a way forward from this mess? And more importantly, is it close at hand? Josh, let's start with you as someone recently employed at 10 Daily, which, as we know, is no more. You worked there for over two years. What did it bring to the table, in your view, that was different? And are we upset about it going just because there's been so much loss? Um, Look, I think what we brought to the table and what we sort of started out with from the very start was, and I think everyone sort of says this, but we, we, we did try and do things a little bit 
differently. I mean, you know, obviously um, when, when, when Channel 10 started uh, a news website, um, obviously Channel 7, Channel 9, ABC, SBS, you know, every other sort of major um, mainstream news channel had a website and had had one for quite a while. Um, so we started off this website, we knew we were kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, I guess, so to speak. So for us to kind of come in and just trying to do just straight news, just cover like the meat and potatoes sort of vibe of the day-to-day -day news wasn't really yeah. going to work. So when we came in, we said, you know, part of the, the mission was we kind of had to try and do things a little bit differently. And I think we did do that. We, we, we looked at an audience, um, you know, obviously Channel 10 is kind of, you know, always seen as a younger person sort of audience, the under 50 sort of, um, you know, network. And, and that was the sort of audience we tried to cater to. We tried to look at an audience where people might not have been political junkies. They might not have read every single newspaper every single day and kept up with every single development of Parliament House and global affairs and that sort of thing. We tried to figure out a way that we could get people who weren't typically news junkies to to care about and understand and want to read the news. Mm. Um, and, and I think we did it really, really effectively. I mean, you know, when, um, whenever I was, I know, when I, whenever I was writing for our audience, I'd try and think about, you know, how can I get someone who wants to know about property prices, who wants to know about what's happening in Syria or in Iraq or in, you know, parts of the world that you don't really hear about too often, what's happening with petrol prices and, and people who want to know this sort of stuff, but they're sometimes intimidated by, you know, the, the, the way that maybe other big mainstream outlets sort of cover that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and it's hard if you're, a, you know, an irregular news consumer to suddenly jump into the middle of a story about a developing scandal in, in politics or but what's, some but what's it? I mean, what's, what's curious is, I mean, Tim has a reputation for trying to do things a little differently and, to, and, yeah. and for appealing to a younger demographic. Tim Daly was kind of wading right into that space and from what I gather, having a degree of success as well. So it, it seems odd that when you're trying to penetrate a new market digitally mm. that you get the boot. Yeah, and and it it was you know uh, a disappointing sort of um, you know announcement last week for for all of us and uh, from from what I know about what what the decision was made and all that sort of thing and you know it's not really my place to kind of talk about all that sort of stuff but uh, we, we we've been told that it was sort of a, a decision made from way high up um, oh. of our sort of corporate owners in the US which is you know uh, CBS and Viacom and and it's it's unfortunate um, and we're all really disappointed. Um, uh, from what we've been told, it wasn't a decision made on on this side of the of the of the ocean, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So COVID nineteen. Let's talk that a little bit because it's it's um it isn't just a wrecking ball for digital sites. Newspapers, which were still in print mode, have been either closed or moved online. So COVID is kind of doing what any number of previous financial shocks have failed to do and deliver a pretty fatal blow. Is that how you see it, Saffron? Is is COVID just accelerating? Is it a new force or is it just accelerating old problems? Uh, unfortunately, um, I think it is. Uh, accelerating problems that pre-existed um, COVID-19 um, and obviously a, a whole range of businesses across the spectrum have been affected by the pandemic um, mm. and news is one of them and can I just say Josh um, I was devastated by the way to hear about the closure of 10 daily and I'm really sorry for you personally um, I know it's difficult for so many um, working journalists at the moment. I think that um, uh, we're definitely seeing 
um, the pandemic has has sped up a process that had already started. Um, you know, we'd already seen, for instance, last last year, the the closure of you know some of the Win News Television um, bureau around um, around the country or mm-hmm. along the um, eastern seaboard. Um, we'd already seen papers um, move to the digital space. Um, they were struggling already. I think that it, it, the fact that it's happened so quickly, so many affected, so many communities um, and and readers and audiences um, affected all at once um, is what has got us talking about it. And frankly, we, we should have been prepare, preparing better before this. But how, um, how do you prepare Saffron? I mean, what does that look like? Well, so uh, we, we've known that, that news has been affected by, you know, a... Uh, a, a business model that wasn't functioning very well anymore. And I think we've been really, really, really f- focused on that. Um, and all of the assistance um, that has gone to news media organisations has been focused on finding the right business model. And I think what the pandemic has showed us is that news, um, particularly at that local level, is actually an essential service. Um, and, you know, if you look at it, times like the bushfires, we, we genuinely see journalists as providing an essential service. And I, I, I think we need to very rapidly move away from the idea that journalism needs to turn a significant profit in order to justify itself. Well, that's a bit problematic, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, journalists need to be paid. It has to, journalism, it can't all be publicly owned or paid for. So I'm not quite sure where you're heading with that. How would you, what kind of business model then would be appropriate? Well, I think I think we need to start looking much more at journalism as a not-for-profit um, uh, operation. Um, we've been, uh, it's very hard for people to get their, their heads around this because for so many decades, um, news has made so much money um, through advertising. And it is, it simply doesn't work anymore. Um, and definitely doesn't work at a time like during a pan- pandemic when obviously advertisers disappear and then we're losing mm. something that is so fundamental to our communities um, and so fundamental to civil society because it relies on a, a market that doesn't actually function anymore. So apart from then, apart then from a move to give a news media you know, DGR status, where, where does that leave them? Where does that leave news media? How do you mean, sorry? Well, if you're saying that we ought to be seeing it as a not-for-profit enterprise, I'm assuming what you're talking about there is that that should be, uh, there should be some taxation structure that would assist news organisations. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to to fundamentally restructure the way we look at news. Um, and, um, and I think we probably also, given the impact on local communities, there needs to be a much greater focus in, in the way um, we reg, you know we regulate and, and structure the news business on on the local um, independent owned um, community owned sort of structure um, at the moment there's sort of you know uh, an assumption that media organizations are generally large um, that they've got a fair bit of um, power behind them a fair bit of financial resources it's not the case anymore I mean one really heartening thing that we're seeing coming out of this pandemic is we've had um, a range of new news outlets which are locally owned um, open up around um, Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia. So we've got, um, you know, new newspapers in Ararat and the Southern Highlands, in Horsham, in Narracourt. And um, these 
um, unless we sort of um, assist them with structural changes, it's going to make it difficult for them to survive in the long term because our entire system is set up to, um, to deal with large uh, media companies like News Corp, like Nine, um, like um, Seven, um, very large organisations that have got teams of, um, you know, they've got legal teams and commercial teams. These smaller operation and public interest journalism operations, which are essential to our communities, they don't have that and the system doesn't currently support them. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, at, at, so would you see those kinds of organisations also being uh, remaining somewhat reliant on advertising, or do you think that we'll see a move away from the, the the traditional reliance on advertising that we've had in news media, Saffron? Well, we're definitely seeing a move away from advertising um, for um, as a as a um, you know the sort of underwriting of the the business model for journalism. There's no doubt about that. Um, mm. I think they'll probably, particularly at a local level, there'll there'll always be a space for some advertising. I mean, you've still got that basic idea that. Um, that you know advertisers um and i'm thinking about a local community here um they want to get in front of people um mm. and the way to do that is um you know to to um take the, the their brand to where where people want um to be um which is finding out about you know their local community news so i think there'll always be a bit of that but i, I think it's going to be a much 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 smaller part of it you've also and by the way i'm not suggesting that you know news organizations should be all um not for profit i think there are, you can you can mix it up you can have a little bit of advertising you can have a little bit of subscriptions um and um and i think you definitely need we need to start pursuing much more very quickly and more rigorously the not-for-profit model for news and we've got to make it a lot easier for news organizations to be able to register for that so so josh is there a lesson here for digital media um, that if your business model is advertising reliant you don't have much of a business model yeah, I've been thinking about this for a, for a long time, and obviously in the last couple of weeks, it's um I've had a lot more uh, pause to think about. I guess this this sort of thing, um, it, it's hard because I I always look at this. And I'm not a sales expert, and I don't know anything about media sales and advertising and that sort of thing. But for me, it seems like you know those rivers of gold of classifieds in the newspapers dried up, you know, 10 years ago when someone invented Cars Guide and Domain and, and eBay and Gumtree and all that sort of thing. And yeah. we still haven't figured out how to make money out of news yet. And it still seems that so much of, I guess, advertising departments and, you know, sales teams, that sort of thing, are still just focused on, you know, trying to sell McDonald's and add as your banner on the top of your website. Uh, I think that that point that you made this afternoon about, um, you know, that diversification of that business model is, is really interesting. I'm not sure if anyone really here in Australia has really hit that nail on the head yet. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, whether news organisations might need to be funded by some sort of wealthy benefactor or have some sort of charitable trust or something behind them, like something like the Guardian sort of model where they have, you know, they, they pull a lot of money out of this sort of wealthy, um, you know, benefactor at some point i mean I, i'm not sure if you know i, I don't there really lies a very lot. complex road there lies yeah, a very, exactly very and that, that that's a, that's a whole different argument i guess in itself but um i mean maybe there's, there's some room for a bit of everything you're sort of cherry picking from a few different buckets i mean okay i don't so have a lot of, I, don't, 
I don't have a lot of faith in this idea of, you know, trying to get Google and Facebook to cough up their advertising money. I don't think that's going to be the, the, the road out of this, but maybe there's a bit of that. Maybe it's a bit of, you know, a bit of charity. Maybe it's a bit of government grants. Maybe it's a bit of, you know, getting people to subscribe. Maybe it's a bit of this sort of freemium sort of model where you get, you know, five articles free a month. You have to pay for after that. Maybe it's a bit of, you know, you, you subscribe, you know, micro transactions where you pay like 10 cents or 50 cents for an article at a time. Like, I, I don't think anyone's sort of hit this model yet. And I think it has to be maybe be a bit of everything. I'm not sure. Okay, so can let's, let's talk about subscriptions for a moment because taxation breaks aside. Uh, certainly the legacy media that have spent a lot of time and money pivoting to digital prior to COVID are in a slightly better position, though, as we've seen, of course, this morning, and News Corp are, are cutting. But Saffron, do you see the future of digital news media as being at least in part, in some parts, subscription-based? Um, look, I think there's a place for that. I think we, we do have to um, grapple with the fact that um, we need journalism for democracy to function effectively. Um, and there will, there, there, in order for that, for, for journalism to play that role, there needs to be some journalism that is freely available. Mm. Um, and um, and that's because not everyone can afford, you know, subscriptions, um, and yet they still deserve to get information about, you know, their local elections and, um, you know, what's happening in their local community and, and you know, in, during a pandemic, you know, where to get your, your local COVID um, test if you need it and that kind of thing. So um, I think subscriptions have a role to play. Um, I think the Guardian model that, that Josh has mentioned is very interesting. Um, I, I don't think it works um, for every um, news organisation, but I think you could yeah. probably do something with that um, at local level as well, um, where you've got people, you know, committing funds um, who can afford it in the local community, knowing that not everyone else, not everyone can. Um, and then you've also got that mix that we've just talked about. Um, so I, I think I think there are different ways to tackle it, and the the idea of sort of one hard, um, you know, uh, paywall is, is probably not um, the definitely not the only option, and certainly not one I'd I'd be pursuing at the moment. No, and paywalls, of course, are a particular problem for younger consumers because they tend to not not be able to not like or not be able to afford subscriptions josh do you see that as an issue yeah look uh, that's an interesting question and i think it's definitely one that people do balk at i mean it's not just younger audiences i mean you know i, I think there is uh, i think a, a bit of a sort of vibe here in australia that people aren't really that willing to subscribe to news organizations just yet. I mean, you know, even just this week, I saw a um, very respected uh, figure in the media um, have a go at someone on Twitter because they shared an article behind a paywall. You know, why would you share an article that you need a subscription to, to view and that sort of thing? I think there still is that sort of reticence to, to jump on um, and pay for news. But at the same time, I don't necessarily agree that young people especially might not be into that. Because I mean, I know that myself as a young person, I subscribe to Netflix and to Stan and to Spotify and to a few other things that cost 12 bucks a month or something like that. And mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of news organizations even charge that much. So I mean, what what's I guess it comes out to what's more important to you, whether you want to pay for Spotify, you want to pay for, um, you know, having access to news about the day and the world and your country and your local community and that sort of thing. I think 
I'm not sure what that 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 sort of um, disconnect is about yet. Maybe it's just that we, as a news media, haven't made the case to Australians that news should be paid for. I mean, obviously, people pay used to pay for newspapers and that sort of thing. You pay a dollar or two dollars or three dollars or whatever it is for the paper every day, um, but people still want to get their news for free on the internet. They think that, you know, just because it's online, it's on the computer, that it should be free. Yeah, so um, why, maybe... why, why have we failed in that? I mean, we because that, that, that argument has been mounted and and that case has been pressed for several years now. Yeah, of why, course. Why is it that we have not been able to convince Australians that journalism is not free and should not be free and can't be free? I have no answer to that question. I actually have none because, you know, obviously large flagship papers in the US, you think about like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and that sort of thing, they're, they're growing their audiences, they're growing their subscription um, numbers to, to many hundreds of thousands. Um, mm. And they're making a lot of money out of those sort of things. And because they've got this, you know, locked in subscription base, they know that even when advertising dollars fall or, or whatever, you know, some the pandemic hits, they're insulated against that sort of stuff to a certain degree because all not their eggs aren't all in the same basket. So I don't is, know what it is in Australia. Is it in part that that Australian media has not been prepared until quite recently to to take a, a stand against the big platforms, the Googles and the Facebooks? I mean, is it time for media that media actually left the dance floor, stepped and stopped making free content for them, locking down behind a paywall, regardless of what happens in July when the ACCC hands down its um, mandatory code to make the platforms pay for what they use? Uh, yeah, look, I think um, I think there's a few things um, at work in terms of, um, you know, people um, uh basically educating the wider public about how um, and news consumers about how important journalism is and why you might want to pay for it or, or you know, um, you know, God forbid, why journalists might actually be need to pay the salary so that they can pay their bills and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, Australia is, a, is in a, um, you know, somewhat unique position and definitely different from the States in that we have a really small population and so it's a really small news media market. And um, one of the things I came across when I started Crinkling News as a completely independent um, player who had no competition is that I realised it was, it was I, we were able to get people from all the different media organisations into the room at the same time to talk about something which benefited them, which is so unusual. So because we've got this really small audience all the big media organisations in Australia have spent decades competing with one another. Mm. And so it's much easier to, you know, drive a wedge um, and say, oh, you know, News Corp's bad, therefore come to us, or, you know, Fairfax is terrible, come to us, or, you know, Seven's terrible, come to Nine, um, than it is to to work together because everyone's competing for for small numbers um, and each audience member matters um, in order to make sure you're keeping making money for your business. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really affected um, our ability to work together um, as, as an industry in Australia because of those old rivalries, which are basically commercial rivalries, but which filter down into the editorial, unfortunately, as well. I mean, when I, I tweeted last night about the News Corp um, job losses, the responses I got from Twitter, people talking about how basically anyone who worked for Murdoch deserved to lose their jobs was yeah, yeah. nominal. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and shows a, a really, you know, serious lack of understanding of how journalism works, which is, brings me to my next point, which is that I think journalists um, have, at, the industry has 
um, has sort of taken its audience for granted until very recently. Mm. Um, and we've never really explained how journalism works, um, why it's important, how it's put together. One of my favourite anecdotes is when I was having a conversation with an ABC TV reporter one day and we were talking about how no one understands journalism and she said, um, oh, yeah, I went to interview this guy, you know, as part of this story I was doing, you know, and I had all the research to do. And then I had to go to three different locations across Sydney to interview people. He was one of the, the people I was interviewing. And he said to me, you know, oh, so how many how many stories do you normally produce in a day? And and she said, um, oh, one. And, and he said, well, what do you do the, with the rest of your day? <laughs> and any journalist who hears that story knows how ridiculous it is to try and fit two television stories into one day yes 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 no I, I look at so as a former presenter of media watch she was often accused of taking taking a whole weekly wage to produce 15 minutes of television I, <laughs> I have I, I'm totally sympathetic yes so I think we've got a lot of work to do to bring people along with this story and to remind them of actually how it is a fourth estate you know, that it is actually really important. And, and we're starting to see that understanding appear quite rapidly when, when local newspapers have shut down during the pandemic because local communities are suddenly going, oh, hang on, I never bought it, but I still want you there. I read it at the local cafe. I don't want you to stop printing. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And, and people are, are realising it matters. And the final thing I'd say, and, and this is obviously something that I'm personally very passionate about and have worked on a lot, is media literacy. Um, and that ties into that, is understanding better how our media works um, and, and how it's made up and how to, to better navigate it. And, and I think that that needs to start right down at, you know, at a young age in our education system. Mm -hmm. Now, I wonder also whether another piece of the, uh, the puzzle going forward is the possibility that individual journalists will just increasingly strike out on their own. Josh, I, I wonder whether, whether you see that, uh, that, that individual journalists might put, out, put themselves out in front of a small, nimble, targeted news audience out of the shadows of the big institutional players, relying on their own wiles. You know, Michael West, for example, one local example, he was yeah. made redundant by the Fairfax Media, then Fairfax Media Organisation. He writes a very successful business-focused journalism uh, blog stroke website, has a small but committed paying audience. Is that a new model to get excited about now? Look, I think it is a new model and it's something for some people to get excited about. I don't think it is a sustainable model for hundreds of journalists. I mean, I look at a lot of journalists in the US and there are a number of journalists in the US with a population of 300 million where that you can do that. You can you have a big enough population where if you have a blog or a Patreon or a, like a, a newsletter or a sub stack or some sort of personal website that you're charging people I don't know, a dollar a week or 10 bucks a week or something like that you mm. can make a bit of money out of it you know if you're a, a reporter as you mentioned Michael West if, if you're a sort of person who's really interested in very deep complex financial reporting there might be enough of an audience for you there if you're really interested in say climate change reporting or a certain topic sports or you know whatever it is that you might be able to get a small audience mm. but I don't know if there's enough of an audience here in Australia that you know 
dozens yeah. or hundreds of journalists could make a living out of that. And again, it comes back to the same idea of how do you get people to pay for your um, uh, for your website? How do you get people to subscribe to it at 10 bucks a week? Or how do you get people to um, subscribe to it at a dollar per newsletter edition or something like that? I think it is a really interesting model. I think you will see it a lot more because there are a lot of companies that are starting to exactly build into this sort of model. Like I, for myself, I, I do a daily or, you know, daily enough um, newsletter on coronavirus. Um, and it's all about stats and misinformation and facts and you know here's a few stories of the day for people who don't have hours and hours to read every single story on the internet mm. but even that I mean you know I have a couple of hundred subscribers and that's great but I don't think I'd ever get to a point where that could be my main income I mm. mean it, it might supplement some income for people who are freelancers or people who work sort of casual jobs at certain outlets or whatever it is but I think it's really interesting. I think it's really cool. And I think you'll see a lot more of that in coming years. I just don't think it's going to be anywhere near enough to, I guess, um, uh, supplant the the model of journalism that, that we kind of have right now and that we're seeming to be losing right now. That's right. No, you can see it working in the United States. It is a function of population. But if all the redundant journalists or, you know, would either go out on their own or even band together, get funding, move forward, produce public interest journalism, Saffron, would mm. there be an audience for that? Definitely. I think there's, I don't know if um, you both saw the news or if the listeners saw the news um, earlier this week out of New Zealand about um, the CEO um, buying stuff. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, I did say that. Yeah. And, and looking at buy-in from the um, journalists themselves so that they actually have a stake in the company. I'm watching this with absolute fascination. Yeah. Um, I think one of the lessons I learned from Crinkling News is that um, journalists produce fantastic journalism. Uh, they're not business people. Um, no. and, um, and you definitely need to get those expertise um, in to, um, to make sure everything's functioning in the background. Um, but I would love to see some more of this sitting alongside and maybe even part of the community-owned models and, and model, and I'm thinking particularly, obviously, about local and regional news here, um, to have um, ownership by the people working for the news outlet. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a really interesting model to start pursuing. And, and I agree with Josh that I think um, Michael West the, is an exception rather than the rule. Um, there are some, there are other, he's not the only one in Australia, there are some exceptions, um, but the audience is just too small in Australia to, to mm. allow too many journalists to do that. Okay, so you're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network and podcast around the world. Our guests this week are Josh Butler and Saffron Howden. Let's end our discussion on a note that reminds us of the power of media and also of traditional newspapers, as it turns out. This week, the New York Times made a country and indeed the world take note as its entire front page was filled with the names of the American victims of the COVID-19 pandemic. Saffron, what did you think when you saw that front page, which on mobile was this scrolling list of COVID victims with just a line about what they'd contributed to the world? How powerful was that? Incredibly. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people saw that um, and, and there was a lot of discussion about it, a lot of sharing of it um, over social media. Um, it's a, it was a really powerful um, and unique way to tell this story. One of the things that it got me thinking about is that how coronavirus um, is, has been such a story about numbers. 
Mm. And it's been really difficult for journalists to get out there and, and do to, to speak directly to people. So, yep. so much of the pandemic has been told using graphs and numbers and figures. Um, and, of course, numbers can be incredibly powerful, but we do, um, uh, we do, it has been difficult to get into the human stories. I mean, we've had a bit of coverage of, you know, particularly health workers, I guess, and that's been really difficult for news, um, for reporters to get because you've got to go into hospitals and uh, it's been difficult. Um, and so seeing all those names um, in one place like that, I think the reason it was so powerful is because it reminded us that behind all those figures were all of these actual people with relatives and mums and dads and siblings and children and, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. And, Josh, was it in part as well the New York Times, do you think, saying, you know, the United States does not have a president capable of leading morally through the crisis, his leadership is incoherent, so we will mourn the dead. We will do what our government has failed to do. I think that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really considered it, but but I, I think I think absolutely. I mean, uh, so even even here, I mean, we 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 hear so much about you know, oh, you know, so many people die every year from the flu or die every year from car crashes. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, people die all the time. But uh, as you said, there's Safra. I mean, it shows that there are stories behind these people. They do have interests. They are regular, normal people, just like other us. They're not just figures on a spreadsheet. Um, but that that is a really good point that that you make there, Monica. I mean, um. That this the fact that so many of these deaths. I mean, just today the US hit 100,000 deaths, um, yeah. and, and that is just astronomical, and it's like mind-boggling. You can't you can't really put that into your head. You think about it, you know, the MCG full of people. That that's sort of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's about extraordinary. Here. Yeah. Um, and, and and like you say, I mean, so much of it has been waved away by Donald Trump, just sort of saying, you know, even weeks ago he's going, oh, it'll be a miracle cure, and it'll be over by Christmas, over by Easter, and it'll be totally fine, and everyone should open back up, and don't worry about it, and US is stronger than ever and all that sort of thing. Um, it, it also goes, I think, just to show, you know, we've been talking doom and gloom about the media today, but I, I think it goes to show just how much of an impact and how much people still do um, consider what goes on the front page of a newspaper like the New York Times to be important. Yeah. Like it, it is a statement. It is a, it is a time and place in the world. And I think, you know, it'll, that will be one of those front pages that we look back on maybe in 50 years or, or one of those things and go, wow, that was a moment in time. Like it'll be one of those ones maybe on par with like the moon landing sort of front pages or, you know, war in Iraq sort of front pages or Barack Obama elected front pages. It'll be in, I guess, that sort of maybe maybe I'm thinking too loftily about how people will look back on the news in 50 years time. But I, I think we will look back on that sort of front page and go, that was, wow, that was really something that, that was like a, a line in the sand sort of moment. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you both very, very much for uh, talking to us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition comes to you from the studios of 2SER and is heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and uh, all things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockle. My name's Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.